You're listening to This Is NX, the podcast about marketing for B2B marketers brought to you by B2B marketers. Join Kyle Shea and Stacey Bradshaw as they talk about trends, insights, and best practices to arm you in the disruptive battle to stay relevant in today's B2B market. And now, this is Annex. Hey everybody, and welcome back to This is Annex, the podcast about marketing for B2B marketers, brought to you by B2B marketers. It's starting to grow on me. Is it? Yes. I have your face says another me down. story. I'm Kyle Shea, Director of Digital Media here at Annex Business Media. Stacey Bradshaw, Digital Project Manager. This is episode number four. Mm-hmm. Good to be back at the mic. Yes, it's been a, it's been a little bit since mm-hmm. we've been back sitting across the table from each other. We've released an episode on webinars. That was well received. Yeah, we had a lot of traction on that one. People still very interested in webinars. Yes, it's, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed over the past couple weeks, you know, since that episode and this episode. Oh, really? What's that? I graduated college. What do you mean you graduated? So I may have neglected to finish an English credit back in the you day. Finally. Finally did it. Got that diploma. I got the diploma. I got the sash. I got the hat, the tassel. Parents must be very proud. Well, it's going to be a Christmas present. <laughs> there you go. Never too late. So, Castle. Canada's anti-spam legislation. It sounds very ominous. Yeah, it's something B2B marketers should definitely familiarize themselves with if they haven't already. Essentially, it's a law that protects Canadians from receiving unsolicited emails, which we all do. I think I've got 20 in my spam box right now. Yeah, there you go. Of course, because it is a law, we, we all have to abide by it. So anybody who's sending emails with any sort of commercial activity associated with them has to comply by these regulations. And our interview today with Vesda Moore. That was a great interview. Really, really great. I thought I knew a lot about Castle. Vesda Moore knows. Yeah. Vesda Moore is our Director of Audience Development and Castle Compl- Officer. Yeah, we send such a large volume of emails here that we felt that it was prudent to have a Castle Compliance Officer to make sure that we stay in compliance. We outline a lot of information in the interview that, it's funny, I actually did some research and I'm pretty sure we are the only podcast out there right now in the world talking about Canada's anti-spam legislation. You know, that doesn't surprise me. Is that surprising? It, no. <laughs> it actually came into effect, I believe, July 1st, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been around for about five years, but it's amazing when I go to conferences and people still are not necessarily that informed about it. And especially if you're doing business in Canada, you really need to be because there are penalties attached. Yeah, big penalties as Vesna Moore will go over in the interview. But yeah, I really think if you're if you're sending emails, if you're in marketing, whether it's B2B or B2C, uh, you should probably stick with us for the next half an hour or so because we're going to outline a lot of um, facts that are not only going to protect you um, from those penalties, but also a way to really take a step back and sort of reevaluate your email marketing practices. And Castle, while it can be scary, is actually a good opportunity to take a look at your list. So a part of um, the Castle requirements is that you have proof that these individuals gave you consent to send them an email. So when we're sending unsolicited email to people who haven't consented to it, they're really not our engaged people. They're not necessarily going to get the conversions and the actions on those emails that you're hoping for. So at least at Annex, we found that when we were sort of forced really to take a 
look at the consent around all of our email lists, it really was beneficial in that we've we've sort of cleansed the list of the people that were not necessarily engaged. Yeah, that's true. And we kind of look at it coming from Annex's point of view as something we're really proud of is that we have Castle compliant lists now. And at Annex, we found that as a benefit that we spent all the time and effort to make sure that we're Castle compliant, that we could then go out to our advertisers and say, hey, you, know, mm-hmm. you might want to ask your other advertising channels if they're Castle compliant, because if they're not, watch out. We are, you know, and, and we gained business on that. Yeah, so I think Bez is going to go over um, not only the um, how to stay in compliance, but um, some of the intricacies around Castle, implied consent versus expressed consent. That's right. one I always get sort of yeah. uh, mixed up on. So we're going to clarify some things around that. So we're going to come away with five takeaways from uh, our interview with Vesna. And number one, lawyer up. A lawyer that is familiar with Castle is really going to help you as a marketer understand the requirements and what your obligations are under the law. Number two, take inventory of your email database. Yeah, so that's where the whole determining consent thing comes in. So taking a look at your database and putting people into buckets. Are they implied consent or they express consent? And Vesna is going to really deep dive into that. Number three, be cautious. Yeah, I think it's sort of a when in doubt, don't send to that person. If you don't really have proof of their consent or you're unsure, always err on the side of caution. Number four, a good marketing person. Yeah, the onus is really on you and the company to ultimately know the ins and outs of Castle and be able to show your due diligence that you've done your best to stay in compliance. So you really should have a person or people ultimately that are responsible for knowing Castle. And number five, Look around for companies to partner with. Yeah, lots of consultants out there that can help you with Castle. Shoot us an email at podcast at thisisannex.com. We can certainly send you in the right direction. And now here's our interview with Vesna Moore. Welcome to Vesna Moore, our Director of Audience Development and Castle Compliance Officer here at Annex Business Media. Vesna, how are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And of course, we have Stacey on the other end as well. Hi, Stacey. Hi, thanks, Vesna. We're excited to have you here. So let's get right into it. Castle. What does it stand for? Canadian anti-spam legislation. Oh, it just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it does. It does. It's been around for a little while now, so we're all getting more and more used to it every day. I think officially in play July 1st, 2014. That's correct. I remember it well. Yes, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> so with Castle, that kind of put a really big monkey wrench into things in 2014, didn't it? Yeah, it really did. Um, back when Castle first came around, there was a lot of concern about the legislation itself. A lot of it didn't make a lot of sense to most businesses, even the lawyers from what I heard that were getting together to try and determine what Castle meant to any given business were at odds with a lot of the components within the legislation. So it was very onerous to say the least to try and even just understand what Castle meant in general, let alone how does it apply to your business now. So um, back, you know, well before the July 2014 deadline, we were dealing with our legal counsel and dealing with our, you know, upper management teams and trying to determine what we needed to do in order to comply with this new legislation. Um, And it was about four or five months of dealing with that, just to be able to understand what it is we need to do going forward. Yeah, I remember the the government sessions that were put on uh, well before, in the months preceding or before the the July 1st deadline, that was some pretty dry content. It it is very dry content. And I think that even they didn't understand 
some of the nuances within the legislation. No, I remember there was yeah. like a panel yeah. and yeah. even the individual members would have individual kind of interpretations you, of you certain aspects. You get a completely aspects. different answer to the same question depending on who you asked. Um, and, you know, the truth of the matter is when this legislation first came out, there was nothing in the legislation about business-to-business emailing. It was more of a consumer marketing sort of approach to the legislation. So when they first introduced this legislation, it, until they revised it, it was actually illegal for an employer to send an email to an employee or for coworkers to send each other emails. Wouldn't that be because nice? there was no consent. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, you know, a, weekend I, sure is a, weekend, a, a lot of people would have wanted it to stay that way, but they went back and rewrote it. And as a result, we have some, some B2B exemptions within the legislation, which I think um, are extremely helpful, certainly to our organization, being a media company and being a B2B media company. Uh, we rely on those exemptions a lot. But I think a lot of businesses out there aren't even really aware of some of these exemptions that they could use in their day-to-day marketing and emailing that can really come in handy. So I guess that brings me to the first question um, that I've got. Does the legislation prohibit me from sending marketing messages? If you ask the CRTC, they're going to tell you no, 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 we're not prohibiting anybody from doing anything as long as you abide by the legislation. So technically, no, they're not in a grand scale um, prohibiting you from sending an email, commercial electronic message to anybody. What they are doing is they're putting a group of laws around when you can and can't send that email. So you are actually being um, stopped from sending emails in a number of circumstances. So if you don't have consent, you can't send the email. If you're not allowing um, some kind of unsubscribe mechanism to be on that email that you're sending, you can't send that email. If you don't have the identification parameters that is required by the legislation, you can't send the email. So technically, yes, you can send emails, but you have to have one of those or all three of those or a variety of those conditions all met within the legislation in order to send it. So I heard you say something in there, uh, commercial electronic message. Yes. So there's lots of acronyms thrown about in this legislation. That's one of them, actually, CEM. Mm -hmm. So commercial electronic message. What is it? Basically, the way that they describe it is any kind of email that is sent to a Canadian electronic address that is promoting any type of commercial activity. So if you're sending an email that you think is just a general email, you're maybe you're soliciting for information from a person, but if you have any intent of using that uh, information in a commercial way, then it's considered a commercial electronic message. So as an example, we try to define our emails in two different ways, marketing messages, which would be CEMs, commercial electronic messages, or transactional messages. So if someone has signed up for something, you need to send them an invoice, that's a transactional message. It's not necessarily a commercial message. Um, It's really more of a marketing message, something where you are trying to solicit some kind of commercial activity uh, from the individual that you're sending that email to. Vesna, you mentioned there were some exemptions for business to business. So what do those exemptions look like? For example, um, if I'm a a CMO, I'm a chief marketing officer or a director of marketing at a a company and I have a, um, a list, say I keep it in MailChimp or Constant Contact, some of these would be prospects, some of these Uh, might be new clients, some of these might be existing clients. So do I have to sort of distinguish between the two and and, and what are those exemptions in terms of of B2B? Yeah, so the exemptions within the B2B um, are based on the type of consent for the most part. So there are three main components to Castle to start with, and they pretty much apply to everybody. The main components are to have consent, whether that's expressed or implied consent, to have 
the identification of who the sender of that email is or any other parties that it's being sent on behalf of, and then to have a working unsubscribe mechanism that is readily available and functional at all times on the emails that you send. The question you're asking, Stacey, is specific to the consent. So under the B2B exemption legislation, there is a provision to allow businesses to communicate with other business people if they can get what's called an implied consent. Implied consent is where you either have an existing business relationship with that individual, so your company and their company have an existing business relationship, or they have provided their email address directly to you. So you're at a trade show and you're talking to somebody and they say, yeah, I'd love to get that information. Here's my business card. It has the email address on there. They have now given their email address directly to you. So that's a version of implied consent. And then the third one is if the email address is conspicuously published in the public domain, which means that it is available online to anyone. You don't, you, it can't be a, a, in, on a website that requires a paywall or a sign-in process. It has to be readily available to anyone in the public uh, to be able to receive that. So those are the implied consents. If you have any of those types of consent on an email address where you have a business relationship with the people, you received it directly from them, or you found them in the public domain, you have the ability to send them an email, commercial electronic message. The caveat is, there are two caveats. One, the message that you're sending them has to relate to their industry or their job. You can't send someone that is, um, let's say, a CFO, a message about something that a um, you know a maintenance person would be doing on a, in a plant or anything like that. It has to be related directly to their title and or the industry that they're in. So there has to be relevance there to the message that you're sending. And then the second caveat to implied consent is that it expires within two years of when you receive that consent. So you do have to keep an expiration date and ensure that if anybody's implied consent is more than two years old, that they are not going to be uh, sent any messages after that expiry date. So I guess the onus is really on on the sender, the, the, the B2B marketer, to prove that they've received that consent. So say they got that business card from the trade show, I have to sort of do my due diligence and make a note that I received it. And, and that sort of, if, if, if somebody had ever complained that we were sending them sort of unsolicited emails, I would have to then in turn sort of prove that I received that consent. Is that right? That's absolutely right. The onus of consent is on the sending party, 100%. So as an organization that is sending out commercial electronic messages, you need to ensure that you are keeping an audit trail of how you got that consent, whether it's an express consent that you received directly from the individual. Um, it can be uh, uh, electronic consent. It can be written consent or it can be even oral consent. So it is up to the sending party to make sure that you are keeping and tracking everything here at Annex Business Media. We um, have a whole scanning process for anything that we receive that's physical paper. Um, so if we get you know subscription forms from a trade show, anything that is coming in physically, we will scan it and archive it so that we can retrieve it should we ever be called on by the CRTC to prove any consent. Um, we have systems in place that are managing that implied consent and managing the expiry of that implied consent. We have systems in place that will allow us to put a source on where that consent came from, the date of that consent, um, the type of consent, and in every way that we can, we also collect IP addresses if it's an electronic version of consent because that gives us some pretty definitive proof of when that consent was collected and from whom. 
It all sounds sort of arduous, doesn't it? I can imagine some of our listeners are thinking, what are the repercussions? What are the real consequences if I don't do this? Well, I, I mean, the consequences are unknown at any given time. So we do know that the CRTC has imposed or, or the Privacy Commissioner has imposed uh, at least there's been seven uh, monetary penalties that I'm aware of. They and range some not small. And some not small. They mm-hmm. range from 15000 for the smallest one, which was actually to an individual out of their basement that was doing a lot of basically spamming, um, to uh, $3 million to a rental car company that was not just uh, not abiding by castle, but was actually putting false claims into the emails that they were sending. So the offer that was sent to that audience was not actually achievable once they got to the front desk of that rental car company. But they used Castle as a means to impose those penalties. So the actual penalties, they are $10 million to the company per infraction. So if you're doing the same mistake over and over and over again with every deployment that you do, that compounds. That can be, you know, 10 million over 10 million over 10 million over 10 million. And then to an individual, um, if you're a, a director or up technically, you can get a one million dollar penalty per infraction personally to you. What's in your? What's the name of your title? Director of Body and Council Compliance Officer. So, and I don't have a million dollars, so I would just be going straight to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me glad that we have a Castle Compliance Officer, which is a good question, actually. That Kyle brings up: Should all companies have somebody ultimately responsible for overseeing this? Absolutely. Just like any other part of your business, there should be somebody that is championing that part of the business, Um, whether you have an official uh, compliance officer or whether it's under a privacy officer that may already exist at your organization or whether it's just someone you can designate as a castle steward, someone that will be looking at the business from all of the compliance requirements needs and ensuring that they're not doing something overtly out of compliance. At the end of the day, the CRTC is not there that are trying to be good citizens. They are. They will work with you to try and get you into compliance. Um, they will, you know, do their best to be reasonable and understanding of the circumstances that might have caused non-compliance. But at the end of the day, I think every company should have someone that's been given not just the charge of um, making sure that compliance is in place, but also given the the power to be able to make changes at that organization in order to come into compliance as well. And let's be honest, the the reason for this legislation was to apply to that guy in the basement, those spammers, those things coming from overseas that Mm -hmm. just fill up your your inbox. And, you know, as media companies, we get put into that because we do send out these uh, commercial electronic messages. So if I'm managing a list, uh, an email marketing list, and I'm using a service like a MailChimp or a Constant Contact or something like that, usually they have sort of a pre-check box that says, you know, I'd like to receive your newsletter or I'd like to receive um, emails or promotions from your company. If that box is pre-checked, does that sort of automatically give me consent to email that person? Does that put me in compliance? It it doesn't fully um, because the requirements for the compliance is, A, you can't have the box pre-checked. The individual actually has to take an affirmative action to uh, provide that information to you. So the box cannot be pre-checked. They'd have to actually check it. And then the wording of, you know, I give you permission to send me commercial electronic messages 
it's very specific um, on the CRTC website as to what that exact wording is and what you need to disclose at the time that you're getting that express consent from the individual. So, and then you again need to track where it came from, who it came from, um, you know, the fact that they checked the box off, get the date and the source and all of that to be able to prove it. Um, your second sort of example where someone is just opting in to receive a newsletter Opting in to receive a newsletter and then providing that email address to a company gives them implied consent. That is not express consent. Express consent is solely when you have something, whether it's online or whether it's at a point of sale, that is just a single purpose for collecting express consent. It can't be tied in with a newsletter or any other product or anything like that. And they have to opt in and you have to be very specific in the wording of when you're collecting that express consent. The newsletter subscription gives you implied consent for two years to be able to send them an electronic message. But again, you always have to make sure that you give them the ability to revoke that consent at any given time through an unsubscribe mechanism or a preference center. When we talk about these messages, there's lots of different, we talk about email, uh, you know, constant contact, MailChimp, but there's also social media. So do those count under this legislation? It depends on the type of messaging that you're doing. So when it comes to social media, the way the CRTC describes it is if you are sending a one-way message, so you're posting or you're tweeting or you're even buying an ad and that ad is showing up in people's streams uh, on their social media feeds, that is not considered to be legislated under Castle because it's, it's almost like a display ad in that sense. When it comes to sending anything into an inbox within LinkedIn or Facebook or any of the social media platforms, once it becomes a two-way approach to communication that is governed by CASEL. So even if you had a bunch of inbox emails uh, from LinkedIn that go directly into LinkedIn's um, in-mail, you cannot just go ahead and send a commercial electronic message to those inboxes. That does apply under CASEL. You have to have consent. You have to be allowing an unsubscribe, and you have to be identifying yourself. But on things like Twitter and Facebook and all that, you are uh, agreeing to, in essence, when you sign up to the service, mm -hmm. to receive these messages on the behalf of uh, whoever's sending it within that platform. Is that right? Within that platform. As far as that one-way communication, yes. As okay, far as the gotcha. posting and the tweeting, that is completely not legislated by Castle. Castle has no issue with you tweeting things, posting things, um, buying ad space uh, within certain sectors uh, within LinkedIn or within Facebook. Uh, it's once you start showing into an electronic address, which is the difference to them. Is it only Canadian companies that have to be in compliance emailing Canadian recipients? Uh, no, it's any company that is sending an email to a Canadian electronic address. So if you're in the U.S. and you're sending emails into Canada, you have to comply by CASEL. If you're in you know, Zimbabwe or you're in Mexico or you're in the Philippines, but you're sending into Canadian email addresses, you need to comply to CASEL. And of course, with things like the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, mm -hmm. uh, GDPR mm -hmm. uh, coming forth, it's very prevalent now that everybody's going to have to go through what Canada went through uh, five years ago. I was at a few conferences over the last six months or so, and CCPA is a big deal to them. And they're very, almost like what we were six months yes, before Castle exactly. came in. It's, it's yeah. quite the feeding frenzy yeah. in the United States right now. And when 
Castle came into play, a lot of our advertisers at Annex from the United States and actually stepped away from emailing their Canadian customers, which kind of gave us a break because we were certified as a Castle compliant uh, sender, were we not? Yes, we were. Yes, we were. Um, Well, we still are. We still are. Yes, exactly. To your point, I mean, the whole world is now struggling with, you know, the concept of privacy and the concept of consent and email marketing best standards due to GDPR and due to the new California legislation that's coming into play uh, in January, still, as far as I know. So at the end of the day, a lot of the U.S. and foreign counterparts were cutting off the Canadian arms of their marketing uh, lists as far as email is concerned. Some businesses that existed in Canada, like InfoGroup, that were um, a sales genie where they would offer email addresses for marketing um, business to business, had to basically shut their doors because they didn't have any kind of consent. So it did affect a lot of uh, companies adversely. But at the end of the day, what the U.S. is now going through trying to comply, um, they don't have the option of just cutting off California the way that they cut off Canada. So I think they're going to be looking perhaps to us here north of the border to see if there's anything that they can glean um, with uh, what the experiences that we had and try and adapt to what they're going through now. Well, as much as Castle was hard to grasp and, you know, put into play, I'm very happy that it was a nationwide endeavor. Yes. I can't imagine having to deal with 50 different uh, legislations across yeah. the U.S. I, I think they're they're looking very strongly right now at adopting one standardized legislation because trying to manage them state by state is going to be, uh, it's just going to be a nightmare for American companies to try and, and grapple with that. So, Fesno, what would you say to a marketer in, you know, a manufacturing market, uh, any one of our 65 different markets who is a little scared to, to go into the email marketing game because of that castle stuff. Mm-hmm. And this goes beyond any of our markets as well. What would be your, you know, five things that you would tell them, uh, you know, this is what you you need to do for castle. Okay. So if, if they are having any reservation because of castle, then they, they first and foremost, they need to seek some legal counsel, get a Good. lawyer. Number on one, yes. legal counsel, legal counsel always um, get somebody that understands it. And somebody that not only understands the legislation because lawyers are lawyers, they go to the letter of the law. You need someone that's kind of already been through the process and understands your business to a certain degree. So the lawyer we used to try and determine our castle needs was a media lawyer. Our media lawyer could understand what it meant to our business to determine where we want to take risk and where we don't want to take risk. And that makes a big difference in trying to assess what you want to do with your business when it comes to email marketing, how much risk you're willing to take. So the first thing is get a lawyer on board, um, have them, you know, kind of give you the details of Castle and um, make sure that you have some legal counsel. Second thing is sit down and take a serious inventory of your email database. Take a look at what you can source, what you can identify as having known where it came from, how it came to you, how you got it, and uh, start doing a the analysis on your data and see how much of that you can already glean some type of implied consent from, some type of um, express consent. And then thirdly, I would also make sure that you are being very cautious. If you need to get rid of names where you can't find consent, get rid of them. Just don't leave them on there. Don't say, well, I'll just email them two or three times and hope to get consent. Um, Sending an email asking for consent is a commercial electronic message. And if you don't have consent to send that email to ask for consent, you shouldn't be sending it. Oh, it's consentception. It's consentception, exactly. And then get a, a good marketing person on board, someone that 
kind of understands Castle to put the programs and the campaigns in place for you, even if it's just a contract person that can come in and kind of get you set up. Uh, and then fifth, take a look at some of the companies that are available out there now. Because Castle has been around for about four years, there are two or three good companies that you can partner with that will help you determine your Castle requirements. And they have even some softwares that will help you make sure that you're going to be Castle compliant. So explore the third-party outfits that are out there that can help you out in a very real way, especially initially. And so somebody does all that. You know, we do all the stuff that we've done. Somebody still complains. If the government does, or the CRTC or yes, the CRTC. Privacy Commission yeah. comes to you and says, okay, we have this complaint dated such and such a date because you sent this message, what would you do? Uh, at that point to make sure that all our ducks were in a row. So if you do have someone that complains to the feispam.ca and somehow you make it onto the CRTC's radar and they approach you, whether it's a warning letter or whether it's a a one-off, just a courtesy call, what you should do is you should start first documenting that specific case. Here at Annex, we try to keep every castle complaint, every castle breach that we may have inadvertently done, not that there's been any, but there's been a couple of times where, you know, something wasn't quite right. We want to err on the side of caution. Err on the side of caution. Document everything. Make sure that you have that and that you're keeping a chronology of what happened and when. So if this person was sent something in error, go back and identify what happened. Okay, we sent it to the wrong list, perhaps. Maybe you sent it, you wanted to send it to, you know, CEOs, but you sent it to um, administrative assistants. So the message wasn't relevant and this person's complaining about that. Document where the error happened. Document whether it was a, a computer problem, electronic problem, or whether it was a, a, a human problem, and then fix the problem, and then log what that fix was and when. So, so showing your due diligence yes, as a company absolutely. upon one of these complaints goes a long way as absolutely. well, doesn't it? Absolutely. And then, you know, brush off the customer service hat and uh, make the phone call to that individual explaining perhaps what had happened um, and just, you know, apologize for the error. And at the end of the day, you're never going to get cited for castle non-compliance if there are no complaints. And if there are no complaints and you're not seeing complaints, chances are you're being compliant and you don't have anything to worry about. But if you are getting a lot of people, most people won't go to fightspam.ca. They won't go to the CRTC to complain. They'll come back to you to complain. So if you're hearing on a regular basis from readers or from clients that um, are, you know, are, are emailing you or calling you saying, get me off your list and you shouldn't be sending me this, where'd you get my name? Then take a look at your inner practices and see what's going on because you really shouldn't be getting very many of those whatsoever if you are being compliant. Great. Stacey, you got any more questions? Yeah, one final question. I'm curious if volume matters. If I'm a small group and I'm only sending to, say, 100, uh, less than 1,000 people, does that matter? I know at Annex we're sending um, a high volume of emails, but for, for organizations that aren't sending to a large list, do they still have to stay in compliance? They really should. I mean, obviously, uh, the lower the number, the lower the risk of having multiple complaints onto the spicefam.ca website. However, having said that, if you have a list of 1,000, but you're emailing it five times a day, perhaps, with five different newsletters, that volume starts to add up, even though your list size is small, but your activity of emailing can be high. But all it really takes is some consistency on your domain to be seen on the CRTC website. So if you are consistently not compliant, and if, you know, 500 of those thousand people that you have on your list are constantly complaining every time you send them an email, you're going to make it on their radar at some point. So um, size doesn't really matter what comes down to it. 
the only thing that might help with size is that uh, you it might be easier to manage your list for compliance. Makes sense. Thank you. And on that note, we'll close it off for today. We might have to come back and talk some more about Castle uh, Vesna. That was very informative. Appreciate uh, all you do here at Annex. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time, I'm sure. It was a lot of fun, and I look forward to coming back anytime. Thanks, Vesna. Well, that was a great interview uh, with Vesna Moore. Lots of great information there, for sure. I think what I come out of that with is uh, the focus on doing your due diligence as a company. The law isn't designed to make us all terrified to send emails, although it all sounds sort of scary. I think it's really just taking an evaluation of your sort of business practices around email. So having those policies and procedures in place, talking to the right people about it, you know, monitoring it and enforcing the rules that you've set in place and, you know, ongoing training for your employees and just maintaining good records. I think if you do that, then you really are doing your due diligence and, and if anything were to happen, then at least you can show your efforts in staying in compliance. Exactly. And of course, we hope this has been a value to you guys. Uh, you know, Castle is a very deep subject. And if you have any questions about Castle that you would like Stacey or I to answer. Or we could pass them on to Vesna. Yeah, let's we, be could, honest. we could pass them on to Vesna. Uh, you can reach out at podcast at thisisannex.com and we'll be happy to see what we can do to uh, answer your questions. And of course, any other comments or suggestions, by all means, email us at podcast at thisisannex.com. Oh, we should mention our magnet presentation. Right. Stacy and I have been asked to present at Magnet 2020. Canada's magazine conference, put on by Magazines Canada in Toronto. It's uh, basically the largest uh, conference for magazine and media professionals in Canada. Yeah, April 22nd and 23rd in Toronto, as Stacy said. We're going to be talking about podcasts. podcasts. Yes. Our session, I think, is called This is Podcasting. Podcast about <laughs> podcasting. Yeah, and uh, it'll be a live podcast. So we hope to see you there. As always, I'm Kyle Shea. And I'm Stacy Bradshaw. And this is Annex. Thank you for listening to This is Annex, the podcast about marketing for B2B marketers brought to you by B2B marketers. As always, please send your questions or comments to podcast at thisisannex.com and subscribe in Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. This is Annex.